Chapter 31 of Science in Short Chapters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Mack, Tucson, Arizona. Science in Short Chapters by W. Matthew Williams. Chapter 31 world smashing sir w thompson's moss-grown fragment of a shattered world is not yet forgotten in the current number of the cornhill magazine january eighteen seventy two it is very severely handled the more popularly shows the fallacy of the hypothesis even when regarded from the point of view of sir w thompson's own special department of study that an eminent mathematician should make a great slip when he ventures upon geological or physiological ground is not at all surprising. It is, in fact, quite to be expected, as there can be no doubt that the close study of pure mathematics, by directing the mind to processes of calculation rather than to phenomena, induces that sublime indifference to facts which has characterized the purely mathematical intellect of all ages. It is not surprising that a philosopher who has been engaged in measuring the imaginary diameter, describing the imaginary oscillations and gyrations of imaginary atoms, and the still more complex imaginary behavior of the imaginary constituents of the imaginary atmospheres by which the mathematical imagination has surrounded these imaginary atoms should overlook the vulgar fact that neither mosses nor other vegetables nor even their seeds can possibly retain their vitality when alternately exposed to the temperature of a blast furnace and that of two or three hundred degrees below the freezing point but it is rather surprising that the purely mathematical basis of this very original hypothesis of so great a mathematician should be mathematically fallacious in plain language, a mathematical blunder. In order to supply the seed-bearing meteoric fragment by which each planet is to be stocked with life, it is necessary, according to Sir W. Thompson, that two worlds, one at least flourishing with life, shall be smashed, and in order to get them smashed with a sufficient amount of frequency to supply the materials for his hypothesis, the learned president of the British Association has, in accordance with the customary ingenuity of mathematical theorists, worked out the necessary mathematical conditions, and states with unhesitating mathematical assurance that, quote, it is as sure that collisions must occur between great masses moving through space as it is that ships steered without intelligence directed to prevent collision could not cross and recross the Atlantic for thousands of years with immunity from collision, end quote. The author of the paper in the Cornhill denies this very positively, and without going into the mathematical details, points out the basis upon which it may be mathematically refuted, namely, that all such worlds are traveling in fixed or regular orbits around their primaries or suns, while each of these primaries travels in its own necessary path, carrying with it all its attendants, which still move about him, just as though he had no motion of his own. 
These are the conclusions of Newtonian dynamics, the sublime simplicity of which contrasts so curiously with the complex dreams of the modern atom splitters, and which make a further and still more striking contrast by their exact and perfect accordance with actual and visible phenomena. Newton has taught us that there can be no planets traveling at random, like Sir W. Thompson's imaginary ships with blind pilots, and by following up his reasoning we reach the conclusion that among all the countless millions of worlds that people the infinity of space, there is no more risk of conclusion than there is between any two of the bodies that constitute our own solar system. All of the observations of astronomers before and since the discovery of the telescope confirm this conclusion. The long nightly watching of the Chaldean shepherds, the star counting, star gauging, star mapping, and other laborious gazing of medieval and modern astronomers have failed to discover any collision or any motion tending to collision among the myriads of heavenly bodies whose positions and movements have been so faithfully and diligently studied. Thus the hypothesis of creation, which demands the destruction of two worlds in order to effect the sowing of a seed, is as inconsistent with sound dynamics as it is repugnant to common sense. This subject suggests a similar one, which was discussed a few months since at the Academy of Sciences in Paris. On January 30th last, Monsieur Saint-Minier read a paper on, quote, the mode of rupture of a star from which meteors are derived, end quote. The author starts with the assumption that meteors have been produced by the rupture of a world, basing this assumption upon the arguments he has stated in previous papers. He discards altogether Sir W. Thompson's idea of a collision between two worlds, but works out a conclusion quite as melancholy. He begins, like most other builders of cosmical theories, with the hypothesis that this and all the other worlds of space began their existence in a condition of nebulous infancy, that they gradually condensed into molten liquids and then cooled down till they obtained a thin outside crust of solid matter, resting upon a molten globe within, that this crust then gradually thickened as the world grew older and cooled down by radiation, I will not stop to discuss this nebular and cooling down hypothesis at present, but it is fair to state that, quote, I don't believe a bit of it, end quote. Taking all this for granted, a considerable assumption, Monsieur Saint-Minier reasons very ably upon what must follow. If we further assume that each world is somehow supplied with air and water, and that the atmosphere and the ocean of each world are limited, and unconnected with those of any other world, or with any general interstellar medium. What then will happen as the worlds grow old? As they cool down, they must contract. The liquid inside can manage this without any inconvenience to itself, but not so with the outer spherical shell of solid matter. As the inner or hotter part of this contracts, the cool outside must crumple up in order to follow it and thus mountain chains and great valleys, lesser hills and dales, besides faults and slips, dikes, earthquakes, volcanoes, etc., are explained. According to Monsieur Saint-Minier, the moon has reached a more advanced period of cosmical existence than the earth. 
She is our senior, and like the old man who shows his gray hairs and tottering limbs to inconsiderate youth, she shines a warning upon our gay young world, telling her that, let her paint an inch thick, to this favor she must come, that the air and ocean must pass away, that all the living creatures of the earth must perish, and the desolation shall come about in this wise. At present, the interior of our planet is described as a molten fluid with a solid crust outside. As the world cools down with age, this crust will thicken and crack, and crack again as the lower part contracts. This will form rainures, that is, long narrow chasms of vast depth, which, like those on the moon, will traverse without deviation the mountains, valleys, plains, and ocean beds, the waters, will fall into these, and after violent catastrophes arising from their boiling by contact with the hot interior, they will finally disappear from the surface and become absorbed in the pores of the vastly thickened earth crust and in the caverns, cracks, and chasms which the rending contraction will open in the interior. These cavities will continue to increase, will become of huge magnitude, when the outside crust goes thick enough to form its own supporting arch, for then the fused interior will recede and form mighty vaults that will engulf not the waters merely, but all the atmosphere likewise. At this stage, the earth, according to Monsieur Saint-Meunier, will be a middle-aged world like the moon, but as old age advances, the contraction of the fluid or viscous interior beneath the outside solid crust will continue and the Rainiers will extend in length and depth and width, as he maintains they are now growing in the moon. This, he says, must continue till the center solidifies, and then these cracks will reach that center, and the world will be split through in fragments corresponding to the different Rainiers. Thus we shall have a planet composed of several solid fragments, held together only by their mutual attractions, but the rotary movement of these will, according to the French philosopher, become unequal as, quote, the fragments present different densities and are situated at unequal distances from the center. Some will be accelerated, others retarded. They will rub against each other and grind away those portions which have the weakest cohesion, end quote. The fragments thus worn off will, quote, at the end of sufficient time, girdle with a complete ring the central star. End quote. At this stage, the fragments become real meteors and then perform all the meteoric functions excepting the seed carrying of Sir W. Thompson. It would be an easy cast to demolish these speculations, though not within the space of one of my letters. A glance at the date of this paper and the state of Paris and the French mind at the time may to some extent explain the melancholy relish with which the Parisian philosopher works out his doleful speculations. Had the French army marched vigorously to Berlin, I doubt whether this paper would ever have found its way into the, quote, Comte Renus, end quote. After the fall of Paris, and the wholesale capitulation of the French armies, it was but natural that a patriotic Frenchman, howsoever strong his philosophy, 
should speculate on the collapse of all the stars and the general winding up of the universe. End of chapter 31. Recording by Tom Mack.